be with you uh, after being gone for a couple weeks to Israel, uh, and it was a, a great trip. Uh, we had a wonderful time. I'm sure I'll kind of share about some of those, but uh, myself and about 30 of us uh, from ZPC went, and uh, it was really great. We're a little bit tired. If you see some folks who look a little bit jet-lagged, um, that's probably why, um, uh, and if I fall asleep in the middle of this sermon, um, I'll just be joining a few of you, so it'll be fine, um, um, but, uh, but it really was a great trip. Thank you to Pastor Scott for preaching the last couple of Sundays. Um, before I dive into today's text, just one uh, little announcement I want to make, uh, which is this reminder that this coming up weekend is the Inquirer's class. So if you are not a member at ZPC and you'd like to hear a little bit more about what it would mean to be a member, what that looks like, uh, then we invite you to sign up for that. Uh, you need to sign up, I think it is, by Tuesday. Um, and then Friday night is over at, uh, at our house, at the Dex house, and uh, we get to uh, just kind of have dinner together and hear a little bit more about you all, get to know each other. And then the next day on Saturday uh, morning, uh, we'll meet here at the church and talk a little bit more um, <clears throat> excuse me, about ZPC. So uh, I encourage you to go online and you can register for that. We would love to have you. Uh, this morning, we're looking at a psalm. Uh, I said that during this look at the life of David, we'd be looking at a few psalms. And so uh, today we are doing that uh, as one of the psalms of David. There are around 70 that are uh, uh, traditionally attributed to David. And so today we are looking at the 145th psalm. And so I invite you to hear these words. Here's what David says. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall loud your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. The might of your awesome deeds shall be proclaimed, and I will declare your greatness. They shall celebrate the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of, your, of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is just in all his ways." And kind in all his doings. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of all who, feel, who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we give you great praise for this psalm, this song that gives you 
praise and honor. We pray that you would speak through this psalm of David this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as I said before, I read the scripture, uh, there's about 70 psalms that are typically attributed to David, uh, but this is the only one of those 70 uh, that is called a song of praise. It's the only one um, that is kind of given that title. Uh, and, and, and of course, that's exactly what this psalm is. If you could hear it well, if you read it well, you can see that it speaks of God's amazing works. It speaks of God's beauty, of who he is, of what God has done to us in large ways and even in smaller ways. One of the other things that's kind of interesting about this particular psalm that makes it a bit unique uh, is the fact that it's an acrostic. And, uh, uh, you know, most of us, I don't think, uh, you know, really read Hebrew. But if you could, um, what it does is it goes basically from A to Z, if you will, that every new, every line starts with the successive letter in the alphabet, right? If it was A, B, C, it would start A, B, C and go down like that, which, of course, is a wonderful mnemonic Device And in this day and age, when most things were not passed down, where things weren't passed down by just reading it, of course, it was by the verbal speech and by being able to hear it, that would have been very helpful in being able to help memorize this particular psalm so that people could have understood it. And so that the more you memorize it, of course, the, the, the deeper it sinks into your heart. Scholars also, though, point out that in many ways, what this also shows is the fact that everything in creation, from A to Z, if you will, that all of it has been done by God, that God owns all of it. It gives this beautiful display that for everything that we have, God is always the one who is to be given praise. From A to Z, we praise God. And so as we kind of think about that broadly then, we begin to look a little bit more carefully at the particular verses of this passage. The first one that I want to point out is verse 8. Verse 8 gives uh, what John Calvin has said is kind of the most uh, of the beautiful and, and concise and succinct um, a description of who God is. You've heard this description, probably most of you. It says this, the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If we want to think about trying to memorize scripture, this would be a great particular verse to start with because A, it's helpful for when you're dealing with others. If they want to know, well, who do you think God is? Well, you can easily, of course, just begin by saying this, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But I also think that this is a really important verse for those of us who have been on this journey for a while. Because when you're on this journey, there will always be those times when you keep feeling like maybe you're coming up short. When your own sin or brokenness begins to cast doubt on whether or not this God can continue to love you. If you have been faithless so often, will God continue to be faithful to us? And so kind of like when we did Psalm 23, I, I want to ask you, because I think the Psalms are a great time to do this, I want to actually ask you just to close your eyes for just a moment, and I just want you to hear these words. The Lord is gracious 
The Lord is merciful. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love for you. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I love that image of God abounding in steadfast love, that God's love just keeps coming. It's just abounding. It doesn't stop. It just keeps coming and keeps coming. And as I was thinking about that, I kind of had this image um, um, that I've heard before that others have probably heard of, of, of of the fact that we are kind of like a cup, right? And just to picture, you know, that God's abounding steadfast love, picture a, a picture, a picture um, 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 that is God's love that actually never ends, right? It just continues to be full, even when you think it must empty. And I just want you to imagine just kind of filling you up with God's abounding steadfast love. Now, here's what else I want you to picture. And I thought about doing this, and then I thought, this is going to make a mess, so I'm not going to do it. But I'm really tempted, but I'll probably do it at 11. I'm not going to do it at 9.30. I want you to picture this. What would happen if I keep pouring? If I kept pouring and kept pouring and kept pouring into this cup, what would happen? It would begin to overflow. You guys are good, even better than the 8 o'clock. It would begin to overflow, right? It would just begin to go out. So it would begin to stain, if you will, everything around it. Everything would begin to be touched by God's abounding steadfast love. You see, and I think that that's the image that we have even given here. Because not only does it talk about how the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but it says that God's creation, as we receive that abounding steadfast love, that we are to begin to proclaim and give witness to that abounding love, right? Listen to this. Um, uh, here, just listen to these, these verses right here. There it is. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your, your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. It goes on in the very final verse to say, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. In other words, there's all this testimony. That's what we're called to do as we receive this gracious and abounding love that we begin to give testimony to. And sometimes we think, well, what does that mean? How do, how do I witness? Oh, do I have to learn these kind of, you know, four spiritual laws? What exactly does it look like? And, and you can do those sorts of things. But what I want you to know is this. When you become a receptacle, when you can actually believe the words that I kept saying here of, of the psalm, that the Lord is gracious and merciful and, and, and abounding in steadfast love, the more that you begin to believe that, the more that you allow that cup to be filled, the more it will simply begin to spill over to those with whom you meet, to those with whom you are in relationship with. You will begin to be changed change because you believe that and there's no way that others then can't begin to feel that same abounding steadfast love because you just begin to become this conduit as you just spill over with the love of the almighty and the more that you can believe those words not just hear them not just say that's nice not just say I'm sure that's true for the person next to me the more that you can receive that 
The more you begin to be changed and you begin to be a witness to all of God's amazing work in the world. Here's the other thing to keep in mind when it comes to this abounding and steadfast love and how we are to give testimony to it. Which is that not only is that for those who are around us right now. But as we see in verse 5 here, it also means that we do the same thing for the generation that, has, that is coming next, just as the generation that has come before has done that for us. Here's what it says. It says, the generation, one generation shall loud, shall give praise of your works to another and shall declare our mighty acts, or your mighty acts. Here's something I want you to hear from Paul Meir. Paul Meir, he, when he begins to, to, to think through what does this mean, he says this, that basically it means that a string of stories are woven back and forth like a large tapestry shaped on the loom of experience. That's a money line. A large tapestry. Can you picture it? Shaped on the loom of experience. There is not one story that doesn't touch another. So think about it like this. If you had this beautiful tapestry, right? And oftentimes tapestries, of course, are kind of, you know, hung up on walls. And, and there are some story tapestries, right, where you kind of begin, let's say for this, uh, you begin on the left-hand side and you can just kind of see the story, right? The loom of experience. And there's all these stories. And if you come over here to the right-hand side, this is, this is you, okay? Does everyone picture you? And you're in this tapestry. Do you see yourself? I see you. There you are. Okay. And you are there. But now here's the thing you know, that when you go over left one way, there's a person, right? And it may be several people who have given witness to God's abounding and steadfast love to you. They're the reason why you're a part of this tapestry, right? And you, you see their lives. And this is what's cool. If you keep going back, you see, oh, okay, well, that person was told by this person who was told by this person. And as you begin to go backwards, right, as you begin to see, and eventually, of course, it all comes back to Jesus, right? And somehow, you know, Jesus, who, whose life impacted one person, let's just say in this case, who then impacted another and another. And what's really cool is if you keep going back even, and you get to David, right, who sung this psalm, right? And, and you see David. And when you take a step back, you begin to see the impact, right, of how one person sharing the story and the majesty and the works of God who shares it to another, to another, to another, and it all reaches over here to where we are right now. One of the things to keep in mind when it comes to ZPC, of course, is this, that there is not one pain on this window, not one blade of grass out there, not one worship service, not one great banquet that has not been shaped by the generation who has come before us. And it is a part of this tapestry. If we could look at it, we could see how that works out. Now here's, here's the other part of that, which is this. Do you now see yourself over here? Even fewer of you now. Here you are. The tapestry, of course, is created to keep going. And so if we have been the recipients of that, a part of our call then is to ask this question. What is the story that we are giving? How are we sharing the works and the love of Christ with others so that that tapestry can continue? So that someday, let's say 100 years down the road or 200 years down the road, if the Lord has not yet returned, you can see that and they will come back if they could and they will see the role that you played in this beautiful tapestry of the kingdom of God. 
But now here's one of the things that oftentimes happens, which is that when we begin to see this and we think, well, man, I don't know, how are we going to do this? We begin to think, oh, well, if you're going to be a part of this tapestry, whatever you do, it has to be something really big. We've got to do something momentous. And I want to encourage you to think that, that more often than not, it is actually in remarkably small ways that we are able to pass on the works and the beauty of God. Uh, one of the things, I'm not going to sit here and, and regale you with a bunch of stories of Israel and go through a whole slideshow. I mean, it was, you know, uh, I could, um, but only, you know, those of you who went would really want to hear it. And so I'll wait for that. But, but I want to tell you this. One of the things that I was most struck by um, um, was in some ways the smallness of things. So let me say this. You know, when you go, you kind of expect, oh, you know, you're going to go and you're going to walk in there and you're just going to walk in. It's going to be like, oh. And there's going to be angels that you see and just the glory and everything's going to be lit up and all of this, right? And there were some momentous occasions, let me be clear. But one of the images that I have that continues to strike me um, is when we were uh, stayed a few nights at this kibbutz, which was fascinating in and of itself, but it overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And, and when I say it overlooked the Sea of Galilee, I mean it overlooked the, the Sea of Galilee. It was beautiful, but it was the whole Sea of Galilee that we were looking at. Right, so, so, so I was there with another ZPC and we, and we looked out, and you know, we're, I was up on a hill to be sure, but you looked out and there was the right side, and we could see where it ended over here, and we thought, oh, well, you know, it looks like it comes over here to the left. Oh, I'm sure it ends way over there. So we took a few steps over here to see, man, could we even get close to seeing the end? And oh, no, it's just, it's right there. Like, it, that's the whole thing? And, and, and I was reminded of some of the stories, you know, one of the stories in scriptures where, uh, in the scriptures where, Jesus, is, uh, he goes off, he pushes off because he's kind of overcome and he wants to get away from the crowd. Do you remember the story in the crowd? Uh, but they like, oh, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna uh, go to the other side. We're gonna meet you. And in my head, I mean, you could have given me the dimensions of the Sea of Galilee and I would have been like, oh, okay. But that's different. I, I kind of was like, man, that crowd, they must have been amazing. No, no, the crowd, to get to the other side, to, to kind of be there when Jesus got there, you basically had to do this. Welcome. Right? Now, it's a slight exaggeration, but not a ton. Like, it just wasn't that big, right? This is not a sea. And this is where Jesus did a vast amount of all of his ministry. And you think, you know, what's amazing is that it just started in these small ways, in this remarkably small, yes, powerful ways to be sure. But, you know, these small ways of Jesus just inviting one follower to come alongside, the small ways of Jesus being hospitable and welcoming the stranger, the small way in, in accepting someone else's hospitality, of, of listening when others weren't going to listen, of loving and caring when others weren't going to do that, by these small acts of grace and mercy that happened in this very small place, really, and yet have done remarkable things. So that when we begin to think about what does it mean for us to give witness to the glory of God, which is this big, massive thing, so often it is in incredibly small ways that we do that, right? By simply listening to others, by simply caring, by, 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 uh, by working with the, with the young, by, by passing out donuts even. You know I love donuts, and, and I promise you, a donut is a part of this tapestry. It is right here. Because I've met many people, this is true, who have volunteered for the donut ministry and they get to know people they never would have gotten to know. And they begin to start and, and even engage in kind of new relations that happen by these simple acts of hospitality. And you never know how that simple act that you did and another simple act that somebody else did in this tapestry and then one other, how those three stories can all of a sudden add one more person who is a part of this beautiful tapestry of the kingdom of God. Are you getting that picture? Are you getting that picture? 
And so there's this beautiful thing here that we see going on about giving praise to God, about the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the more that we understand that, the more that that love spills over in even the smallest of ways, the more that it can begin to touch people, to stain them with Christ, if you will, and to begin to add to this wonderful tapestry of God Almighty. But now if I was going to give a title to this tapestry, The title I would give it is The Kingdom of God. Because that's really what we see going on here in this particular psalm. It's very central to the psalm, actually. Let's listen again to uh, to three verses of this psalm that happen almost right in the middle. Not quite, but almost in the middle of this psalm. Here's what it says. And I want you to say the words that are kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your And tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your. And your is an everlasting. And your endures throughout all generations. There's all this kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And in fact, it's interesting, and this is, uh, uh, this is a bit speculative, but uh, well, let's just roll with it, and you can take it or not. But, but the, three, uh, the, the three letters of this, uh, much like in English, actually, are KLM. That's in this alphabetical, this acrostic. And if you were to reverse that, which makes MLK, you get the word malek in Hebrew. And guess what the word malek in Hebrew means? kingdom. So you have this remarkable focus here on this sense of kingdom that if we want to be a part of this this remarkable kind of tapestry, right? If we want to be able to be a witness to the love of God, to the love that is gracious and merciful and abounding and slow to anger, that we have to be rooted, not just in any kingdom, but we have to be rooted in the kingdom of God. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant going up to Jerusalem, and a part of the reason we said that that was uh, why David wanted that was a reminder that David was not as the king, he was not God, that God was holy other, that the most important kingdom was not his kingdom, the most important kingdom was the kingdom of God. And one of the things that you notice, right, when we were in Israel again, this is the last time, when we were in Israel again, one of the things that's very clear is there's tons of Roman kind of ruins, right, which means that it was very clear to them uh, as a Jew or as a Christian at that time that there was a whole nother kingdom, right, because you could see it in their massive buildings. You could see it in their worshiping of their gods and in their temples. You could see it in all the the soldiers. You could see it in all of those things. It was very clear that there was a whole nother kingdom kingdom there. And a part of what Psalm is asking here is, are we committed first and foremost to God's kingdom? So how do we make sure that we can be immersed in the kingdom of God, which helps us in this tapestry to give praise to the Almighty so that others can also begin to praise the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of who God is? Well, one of the ways, of course, that we do that, perhaps the primary way, is making sure that we really are deeply immersed in the kingdom of God. So uh, one of the things that this that Psalm says is that we meditate on the works of God. We say this a lot around Thanksgiving, but of course, we should do it all year round, which is to take time to create space to see and to ask, where has God been at work? 
Where do I see God? It is easy amongst the busyness of our lives to forget and to not see God's kingdom, to not see where God is at work. So we begin by doing so. We begin by creating that space. The Sabbath, of course, is a beautiful time for us to do that. But another thing that we do is that we engage in habits. So one of the things that the Talmud uh, says about this particular psalm, the 145th psalm, is it says that, that, that good Jews, that we should read this three or, or listen to it or, or recite it three times a day. Three times a day that we should keep going through this again and again and again, even when we don't want to. And I actually mean that. Uh, one of the things that we oftentimes see uh, is that sometimes these habits that we can do, sometimes these habits are really, can get really boring at times. Now, I know it's a little bit almost sacrilegious to say that reading Scripture can get boring at times, but I would be surprised if any of us, if you've really read it for very long, there are times when it can get a little bit boring. There are times when it's super exciting, but there are also times when it's drudgery. And sometimes when we get to that, well, I just my heart must not be in the right place, or well, this is just wrong. No, sometimes you just need to be bored because boredom oftentimes leads to a beauty. Uh, one of the things, and this is kind of a lame analogy, but it's the only one I could come up with on the plane, and so... Uh, typing, right? I know typing is kind of weird, but one of the things when I was, uh, when my kids were younger uh, and they were really impressed by me, um, this doesn't happen very often anymore, but when they were, they would be amazed at, at how quickly I could type. Right now, I'm no world-class typist, I don't think. Uh, if there's a competition, I wouldn't mind signing up, but, but they were like, hey, you're not even looking at the keypad, daddy. How do you do that? And you just do this. Well, you know how I do it? Because in ninth grade, you remember typewriters? Anyone here remember typewriters? In ninth grade, it was me and my business class and an old school typewriter and a construction piece of paper that would go over my fingers so that I couldn't see. And I would just do this. A-S-D-F, 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 D-F-S-A, 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 oh, shoot. Shh-ching, A-S-D-F. Again and again and again. It was this kind of, this habit, right, which was incredibly boring, right? But you know what it began to do? It began to shape the way I see. It began to shape the way my fingers saw. All of a sudden, there was this whole other world that I was able to do that looked at one point, at least, like something kind of beautiful and mysterious and magical. But it didn't happen, start like that. It happened because of these kind of habits. And so, so part of the way that we get immersed in the kingdom and begin to be shaped is by doing habits that aren't always exciting, but by simply kind of reading, doing our, our, our reading, our, our, our Lenten kind of scripture uh, readings as we're doing, or the New Testament reading as we did last year, or reading this three times, if you will, every day, these are the kind of habits that begin to form us. They don't just inform us, as we say. They begin to form us to begin to be shaped by the kingdom of God. And actually, if you go on to what the Talmud says, uh, it's, it's quite interesting because it says that actually if you do that, uh, you, will, you will ensure yourself that you are a part of the world to come, is what the Talmud says. Now, that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. So Stan Mass says, okay, I'm not convinced that that's the case. But here is what he says. Here is what happens, which is that you are reminded when you begin to go over the psalm again and again and again, you are reminded that there is another kingdom that we oftentimes are oblivious to, this kingdom of God. And the reason why we are oftentimes oblivious to it is because we are frequently so immersed in all of the other kingdoms that we simply do not see the kingdom of God. Which brings me to what is going to be my final point, which is, this, that if you want to be immersed in the kingdom of God, if we want to be shaped by that, one of the things that is absolutely critical for us 
is to become more and more aware of how many kingdoms there are in this world who are beckoning us. How many kingdoms there are in this world who are asking us to worship them. How many kingdoms there are in this world who are saying, this is where you get your meaning. This is where you get your purpose. This is where you get your identity. This is where you get your significance. This is where you go when you are nervous. This is where you go when you are afraid. There are so many other kingdoms that are calling us to that, that most of us tend to be completely unaware of. So what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. I'm going to read, I know this isn't great preaching 101, but I'm going to read a little bit of this book anyway, James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love. And I want to read it to you, even though I've lost my place. Here we go. I want to read it to you because I think it's a great example of one way that we have a kingdom. Now, it's a little outdated. This talks about malls. Most of us now, it's like Amazon or Target or some other thing. And so just kind of, you know, uh, relax that. But if you remember malls, I just want you to think about mall as a place to worship or mall as a part of the kingdom of God. Smith says this, Upon approach, the architecture of the building has a recognizable code that makes us feel at home no matter what city we're in. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar texts and symbols on the exterior walls help the foreign faithful quickly and easily identify what's inside. The sprawling layout of the building is anchored by larger pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex, what we call a gathering space of sorts, intended for receiving and orienting and channeling new seekers, as well as providing in a bit of decompression space for the regular faithful to enter into the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there is a large map, a kind of worship aid, to help orient the novice to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observances of the pilgrimage. While one is inside, the daily clock time is suspended. The worship space is governed by a kind of liturgical feastal calendar, variously draped in the colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims joining the procession to the sanctuary and engaging in worship. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find on stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desire to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons, a.k.a. mannequins, embody for us concrete images of the good life. These are the ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire goes on and on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it goes on and on to talk about how you go in. There's an acolyte who's often in these stores who allow you, if they want, they can kind of tell you what you should be looking for, or you can kind of wander about and find your own meaning, your own piece of clothing off the rack that will make sense to you, that will give you a sense of purpose and identity. It's this fascinating world that when we think we're just going shopping, The question is, how many of us realize how what is being offered is so much more than that? What's being offered is something to connect our hearts, to change our habits, 
as I was thinking about that, I realized that I probably could have made it more contemporary by saying it's a bit like going into, let's just say, a basketball stadium or arena. Have you thought about that before? I know it's just a game. But have you thought about going in and the fact that you're there with a, a community of people, a congregation perhaps? Have you thought about the ritualistic symbols that go on that everyone kind of knows after you've been there for a little while, right? When the opponent is shooting a free throw, what is everybody doing? Yelling and screaming and trying to distract them. The chants that everyone knows to do, whether it's Butler or IU or Purdue or wherever else it is. The raising up of a particular people, 10 people, as almost heroes, as almost godlike. And if you think we don't do that, look about how angry we get at that person when that person fails, when our God fails us. Have you ever thought about how we all kind of wear this same clothing, right? What does it do? It gives you a sense of identity and belonging. If you're an IU fan and you go in and you see someone else with IU clothes, you immediately feel a certain kinship or connection. And if you see someone with Boilermaker garb, you know they must be straight from hell. <laughs> or vice versa. It gives you identity and purpose. There's always chances, multiple chances, and we rarely complain about our tithes and offerings that we give to them, whether it's for tickets or season tickets or for clothing, whatever it might be, that we give them the sense of identity. And we are not afraid to witness. Oh, we give witness. We as Presbyterians might not want to witness very often, but when it comes to a big victory, guess what we want to do? We want to tell everybody the good news that Purdue won by two. Exhibit A. And if you are a boilermaker, you're despondent. Our habits change. We arrange our schedules based on when games are. We shape our lives in many ways. You guys liked the mall example a lot more, didn't you? And what am I suggesting? That we never go shopping or that we never get into a basketball game or a football game? I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that as Christians, as those who follow the kingdom of God, first and foremost, we need to be readily alert and aware of how easily our kingdoms, like these other things, begin to take over and our lives begin to be shaped by them. And they will be more than happy for that to happen, more than happy for you to begin to worship those things. And so my encouragement is for us during this Lenten season, I know it started on Wednesday, but here's my encouragement, that we do what James K.A. Smith calls a liturgical audit of our lives. And that means this, that you come up with one thing that you think there might be a chance, there's just a, a slight chance that I might be worshiping this thing, that my life might be too shaped around this particular thing. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. One of the greatest things to do in a liturgical audit to see if that's true is to fast it to take six weeks and to stop whatever it is. If it's the cheering, if it's the shopping, if it's the drinking, if it's whatever particular thing is to eat, whatever, it's, it's the smartphone, whatever it might be. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is that you simply fast it for six weeks. Now you may do that and you may be like, wow, that was no problem. Okay, good. Your life's not being centered around that thing. That's wonderful. Or you might find yourself surprised by how much you're kind of detoxing because you don't have this thing. And it might be, well, as I move forward after the six weeks, I need to change things. It could even mean that I realize that I cannot, this temptation is far too great. I may never need to do it again. And if you're wondering, what is it? What's that thing for you? It's the very first thing that you thought of when I brought this up. Now, there's a chance 
That may not be if it's like, you know, loving my spouse. No, don't stop doing that. But there's a great chance that if it's the first thing that you thought of and you thought, no, I can't do that. There's a great chance that's exactly what it is. This is a beautiful tapestry, this kingdom of God. That tells us that the Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. And God invites us to receive that love, that abundant love, and to pour it out. But in order to do so, we need to be immersed in the kingdom of God. We need to be aware of all the other kingdoms. And as we do so, as we become shaped more and more, we will begin to see the tapestry of God's kingdom growing in beautiful and bountiful ways. For God's glory and for God's glory alone. Amen and amen.